0: This episode of the Proceedings Podcast is brought to you by the members of the U.S. Naval Institute. Our members write, debate, and discuss key issues that ultimately strengthen the Navy, Marine Corps, and Coast Guard. Benefits include a subscription to our award-winning Proceedings Magazine, discounts to over a 1,000 titles from books published by the Naval Institute Press, and graphic novels from Dead Reckoning, a discounted subscription to Naval History Magazine, special invitations to conferences and events, and access to 146 years of archival information such as historic photos, oral histories, and so much more. For more, go to usni.org join. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Proceedings Podcast from the Deck Plates edition, where we're going to dive into topics that explore perspectives, opinions, and experiences from a variety of enlisted Navy professionals, active duty, reserve, and retired. I'm your host, Paul Kingsbury, retired Fleet mass chief and co-director of outreach for the U.S. Naval Institute. And today is my pleasure to welcome Senior Chief Petty Officer Robert Stewart, U.S. Naval Reserve Retired who wrote an article, Standing Ready Off Korea, which was published in the January edition of Proceedings Magazine. Uh, And I think it's a cool sea story, and I think we can gain a lot of insight out of this. So, Robert, thanks for taking some time to join me, and welcome to the Proceedings Podcast.
1: Thank you, Paul. I'm really pleased to be here.
0: All right, so obviously we have a small bio here that was at the end of the article. You retired in 1997 after 21 years, and it looks like you were a fire control technician. Uh, you had some time assigned to fighter squadrons. That was the time when this article was written. But uh, tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've been doing since retirement.
1: Well, since retirement, uh, I've been working as an electrical engineer in a lot of different spaces, uh, including right now with uh, large electric motors. And it's actually very engaging, and I enjoy it. It's uh, very much like being an electrician's made aboard ship, only I don't have to go aboard ship anymore.
0: Yeah, that was my rating: nuclear electrician. So, all right. So let's get uh, into the discussion. We got a lot to talk about here. So. I always like to ask authors, what prompted you to write this piece? Uh, have you been writing all along, or was there something that kind of prompted you to submit an article for Proceedings Magazine on this topic?
1: Well, I actually wrote a lot of this down, my history, after I returned from Japan in 1983, simply because I didn't want to lose it. And over time, at that time in my life, I wasn't doing a lot of writing, but since then I've done a fair amount of technical writing, and listening uh, to the podcasts uh, from the Naval Institute and. I wrote an article a year ago about uh, Tomcats on Midway. Okay. Uh, I thought, you know, I've got another you know story that's relevant currently, and since I've done a lot of technical writing, I thought that was a nice thing to do, especially since we're not able to go anywhere or do anything. And I would share that because there's a lot of historical context in it for what's been going on, uh, you know, around the world in the last you know 12 to 18 months uh, globally as it changes, not only with uh, the pandemic but just all of the political situation as different countries are changing how they posture themselves in the world. So, for this one, we were in Sasebo in December and it was really cold, but we'd spent days offloading all of our ordnance, which most of us had never seen done before. Uh, the crew was fairly young, at least in the division where I worked in AIMD. And here the ordnance groups were just busy getting everything off the ship. We pull into port, they're getting it off the ship. We're coming back from the fourth day of Liberty. It's like, you know, 28 degrees Fahrenheit outside. Uh, There's nowhere to go and nothing to do. And they're bringing it all back on. And that really sparked the attention of what in the world is happening. And eventually, uh, Captain McGrail got on the 1MC the next morning and said, we're off to Korea. And that's why we're here. They used to refer to it as the tip of the spear of where, you know, we're on station, we're forward deployed. And when there's a crisis, we go. And very much we were on the way. And so we reloaded weapons for two days on the way back to Korea. So we'd just been over there prior to that.
0: And what was the general tone? Because I was in something similar uh, right before the Persian Gulf War, the first one broke out. So like you said, that you know, there's certain things that happen on a ship or when you're coming up and down pier that definitely get your attention. So what was the general reaction of the crew or your peers uh, when this was
1: happening? The first reaction is like, well, oh, this can't be real. This can't be happening. And then it was very clear that it was happening because we were loading like madmen for, you know, two days on the way back to Korea. And most of the crew, I'd say probably better than half were all post Vietnam sailors. They hadn't been there, hadn't been involved in Yankin Station or any of the things going on over there. So this was a new experience. There really hadn't been any of this type of thing going on. And the stress throughout the ship was kind of like a very tight guitar string where you could pluck it and it would ring for a bit. And. We didn't have any current info on what was happening in Korea. I mean, to us, it was out of out of mind. Right. And then suddenly, here we were, to Korea. And the scuttlebutt uh, was overflowing. Well, it's going to happen like this, or this is what they do. And uh, I think a lot of it was that nobody knew. They were speculating to fill the void. So there was a lot of stress uh, throughout the ship.
0: Okay. And you said Captain McGrail was speaking to you regularly, giving you updates. Did that work to help alleviate some of that stress and, and help uh, relieve some of that uncertainty? Or uh, in some cases, did it raise it?
1: I think for the most part, uh, it helped alleviate some of the stress because he told us as much as he was allowed to tell us. He was keeping us informed of what was happening. And so then it was, OK, we can, we can cope with this because now he's, he explained who was with us, which ships and what we were being prepared to do. And that's where the story was about the um, uh, North Korean troops coming down to the DMZ, because Midway was originally scheduled to be uh, in restricted availability in the dry dock at uh, Yokosuka Naval Base. And so we weren't going to be available And over the Christmas holidays. So the theory was that the North Koreans were going to come down and try to push since there was no carrier. Well, we pulled out a Sasebo, and externally, you'd think we'd have headed back to uh, Yokosuka like we were exposed. To do. And here we were suddenly off the coast of Korea. And he basically told us that uh, once we were loaded and everything was armed and ready to go up on the flight deck, that it was communicated to North Korea through some mechanism that, uh, no, we're not in port. We're out here. Uh, you want to come play? So then we went into like a 36-hour waiting period to see what they were going to do. And that was probably the longest 36 hours of our life because we didn't know what they were going to do.
0: Yeah, so I think it gets the importance of, you know, in situations like these, you often hear leaders giving advice to connect their people and their teams to the why. So it sounds like you guys had a connection to why things were the way they were. And from there, it just happened to be if and when was going to happen. Is that a good way to summarize it?
1: That's a great way to summarize it because we knew why we were out of port. A lot of our holiday plans, we chose to cancel them because we expected to be over there for, you know, three to four weeks and would have been right through Christmas. But we knew what was the point of taking us there and the objective. And it turned out that some years later, I ended up meeting a former Air Force pilot who had been on the reconnaissance side of determining that all the forces from North Korea were actually physically there. He'd never heard my side of the story and I'd never heard his. And it was very interesting to put it all together to understand that this was really happening and that it had really happened. And that kind of context historically, I think, is very fascinating to me because we often end up when we're in the moment with only one little piece of the puzzle and don't see the rest of it.
0: Yeah. And I think it's important to connect why, because again, life at sea, you know, when you're not in these situations can be mundane, routine, especially if you're not pulling in a port or deployments are extended and you don't understand why that can quickly lead to frustration, lack of buy-in. But when you're when you know there's a mission there, and and the game could be on the game of warfare, it puts you in a different mindset and a perspective. This this article resonated with me when I read through it because I went through not the exact scenario, but something very similar in 1990 when I was on USS Eisenhower. We were coming back off deployment. We were in the med back when we actually used to do med cruises, right. And we were in port, I forget which one it was, but I remember the captain coming on, on the 1MC, you know, he teed us off and let us know, hey, in no uncertain terms, we had to go take station. And I remember him saying, Saddam Hussein in Iraq, the situation there has become unbearable, we're going to go take station in the Red Sea. And that was kind of a big wake up moment for me as a young sailor, as a second class petty officer. So we went ahead flank across the Med, got through the Suez Canal. That was kind of cool. And remember back then we weren't, we didn't have a routine presence coming from the Med into the Persian Gulf or the Red Sea, but taking station and then to see the flight deck actually with all the jets loaded with bombs and all they had to do was pull the pins. That was a grow up moment for me as a sailor. So was this similar to you?
1: Very much so, because none of us had really experienced that. The only time we'd seen that type of thing happen is when we had to do our qualifications and had 24 hours to put 500 pound bombs on target by the air wing. And I mean, that was an exercise and all of the, the purpose of it, we understood. But in that aspect, it was real only for the purpose of the training. And then now we were in a position where that training was exactly relevant to the situation we were in. And they had Everything was loaded, and, or if it looked like it would fly, you know, that's an expression I've used before. but it looked like it would fly, they loaded it. And had crews sitting in the fighters on the deck for a while, just waiting to go. We were, within some days, within 5 to 15 minutes of launching while we were waiting. And part of the anxiety was, that we'd been told that the North Koreans had some patrol boats with 5-inch guns and these 24-inch diameter surface-to-surface missile and a ship's surface-to-surface missiles. And None of us really knew anything about those. So in our minds, they probably were visualized larger than they really were. But where we worked out in the under the angle deck outside the hull, the plating on our compartment was half an inch thick. And it's like, hmm, we're just feeling a little exposed here, you know? Yeah. So there
0: is a point to that. I was just thinking that you start to think about your ship in a different way and there's a feeling of vulnerability. But then I always felt hey we're trained we got a team that wants to do well here and you know we're capable and highly capable and more capable than our adversary and that usually helped at least me mentally through that experience.
1: I agree with that and I think that over time Captain McGrail was able to provide more information to support that that we had uh, escorts with us and they were prepared to deal with those patrol boats and it turned out that though those of us in the crew didn't know it that uh, the captain and his staff had experience countering and dealing with these patrol boats and knew what to do. But that wasn't the first thing that they told us. First thing was, we're going, get ready. Here we are. And so over time, we had the ability to fill in some of that backlight. And, you know, you had the experience, uh, going to, uh, to the Red Sea and my daughter-in-law was on a destroyer, uh, when they took those three carriers over to, uh, North Korea, what, two years ago? Yeah, roughly. About, yeah. And so this history of, uh, response, really does have the ability to repeat itself. It may not be identical, but the purpose is similar in every case. We're trained, we're ready, we're present. And in the case that I'm describing, no ordinance flew. The guys backed off and went home. And that was really the whole point of being prepared and on the edge out there was there was no conflict. There was no shooting or fighting. And uh, we really, in that way, came off of it relieved, but also feeling like we'd really done our job. That's why we were here. We didn't have to go to drop a bomb or fire a missile.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I wrote down just a note, common experience of sailors at sea, right? So I think it's at some point, I don't know what percentage of sailors get to that point to where we train. Like I said, it's routine, it's deployment. And then there's a situation where you're on station and a reality kicks in that, man, this is real. This is naval war fighting, And we're here to do a mission that could have pretty s- severe consequences. So again, I appreciate you writing that. And um, I like the fact that it's told as a sea story. As you know, as a you know, retired senior chief, we often rely on using sea stories to help teach lessons and connect sailors to our heritage and history. So what are some of the key lessons that you wanted uh, the readers and the listeners of the podcast to understand from this article?
1: History has a lot of context, and we need the context to make the history effective to us as we carry that forward. And as you saw, not only was it me, it was you, my daughter-in-law. A lot of the times, that if we're dealing with it in the moment, we're not looking at the bigger picture. The bigger picture gives us the experience to relate to junior sailors or new members of the mess or anyone else who maybe has not been exposed to it or dealt with it. And, for example, I always worked in the aviation side of it, being an aviation fire control technician. I really didn't have any understanding to the same degree of what the inner workings make the ship go. But the story is still relevant because they got us there. Yeah. And so those are the things that are important for me when I relate the story to someone is that, you know, understand why we're here and what we're doing and it's the training is important because when you need it, you can't go back and redo it.
0: Yeah, and another one you wrote, you said a lesson you took away was that Kim Jong il apparently had great respect for aircraft carriers and their ability to be anywhere at any time. So this is that again, that deck plate sailor, you know, doing the work day to day, but able to now understand The mission of this ship and the broader Navy, and how it can have strategic implications for the country.
1: Indeed. And it is a forward deployed piece of the country and represents the entire country when it's there. We hear that said sometimes, like when we're in boot camp, but it's really a fact. All right.
0: So let's talk a little bit about history, right? I think history is important for a variety of reasons and heritage, right? So, you know, I was recently invited to talk to a group of chief selects about history and heritage and the difference. And history is the collection, the facts, the decisions that were made, who made them when they were made, why they're made, and the outcomes. But the heritage ends up being something different. I think the heritage is, it's all the stuff you bring forward across generations, regardless of the facts. And that was that, why I want to make a point, like, I think the big thing here for a younger sailor reading this, or even a, a chief today, is that common experience of sailors at sea. That's a part of our heritage that we all go to sea, and we fight, and we have these experiences being on the pointy end. So what's the importance of history mean to you and why, what would you offer to our listeners on that?
1: For me, the history is very much shows where we've been and gives us a concept of why we did it. And we can then turn and look into the wind and figure out where we need to go, not to abandon what we did before, but how do we carry that forward in how we're going to proceed in the future based on, you know, representing ourselves around the world and even just along our own shores. What does this carry? Why do we do it? Why is it effective? And to these junior sailors and new chiefs in the mess, for example, you know, what is your role in it? And that's often one of the bigger pieces that until they have their moment, they don't fully understand unless it can be related to them. And I think that's where the history aspect of it is really important, you know, and communicated in a style like this.
0: I think it does a bunch of stuff for us. I think it helps, like you mentioned, it puts decision-making in context, right? So I found, you know, as a fleet mass chief, there'd be some policies that had been around for a while and we'd be mulling them over going, okay, is this something that needs to be changed? Where I found myself often going was back to, in history, back talking with people who had made the decisions to get context, right? And why the decision was made back then, what was different socially or contextually in the Navy, and then to bring that forward and then go, okay you know, in today's context, does this still apply? Does this need to be revised and things like that? And then again, it was always great to be able to come across uh, retired veterans of any type just to get their stories and just to share that common bond. You know, for those younger, you know, we talked before the podcast before we started recording about, you know, we both gained an appreciation for history later in life. And I think that happens with most people, probably because When you're younger, it's just like you don't get it. You don't get the broader context. But also, I think they present it from too much facts, figures, dates, memorizing stuff. I think the big thing you got to take out of it is the significance of an event in history. So to you in your article, what was the significance in your either personal life or for the country, you think, in the standing ready off Korea scenario?
1: I didn't necessarily recognize it at the time, though I did after I returned from Japan on that tour was that, you know, in the end, I mentioned the comment that people said, well, what's the whole point of having the Navy? And I would tell them the story and realized, you know, there's half a million young men and women in all the services around the world and in the U.S. that are ready to respond to an event when it's necessary. And that was something that really came to me and rung like a bell because we can say, well, we need this asset here, that asset there. But in the whole We had what we needed when we needed it. So I would tell the folks, just go home, go to bed and sleep comfortably at night because there's people looking out for you. And that's not a perspective that I had when I went overseas. I was still more focused on, here's my job, here's what I'm going to do. And I would not claim that I really understood my place in that overall context. But after this event, I really started to appreciate it a great deal more is that, yeah, I I was part of that. Now, I was one of, you know, 5,800 men on the ship, but still I did my part and I was part of it. And that was something that I've always carried with me is because people often say, well, I'm not doing anything or this is unimportant when we don't have, uh, you know, billets on ships for unimportant jobs.
0: All right. Let's let's uh, let's shift gears here a little bit. I'm going to assume, I know you do. I know you're a member of the Naval Institute. So you've been writing, listening to the Proceedings Podcast. So I'm going to assume you keep informed of current events. What's going on in the Navy and larger with the country, Department of Defense, you know, international affairs. So what crosses your mind these days regarding the Navy and readiness? Um, or, you know, do you ever find yourself comparing and contrasting the time you served with today? What you know? What's good? What, what do you like? What don't you like? You know, I think it's important to get that perspective.
1: For me, I see a lot of corollary between the story I related to the situation with uh, the buildup in China and Taiwan just being across that 28-mile strait or whatever it is, and I think that from what I'm reading, a lot of people are of the opinion that's not a case of if China invades Taiwan, it's when. So this story here kind of resonates in that context as well, because the question will be, something happens, how will we be prepared to respond, and who will be there to respond? And then I look around some of the other things going on, and we're still over in the Middle East because we need a constant presence and can be asked to respond at any time. So I try to keep up on what's going on and filter through the noise and and look at the concrete aspects of uh, what's going on around the world because I still have family members in the military.
0: You know, we'll get, you know, articles come in, we'll get a retiree perspective, and there just seems a a hesitance to be able to. Adapt to the fact that things have changed, right? So I think it's important to do that. You said uh, before we talked that you've been involved with the CPO initiation process out there in the Portland area. Is that true?
1: That is true. Okay. And uh, I participate when able uh, with the NOSC over in Portland, where they have uh, the reserve uh, chiefs that have been selected and going through the process. And some of the aspects of the, the new season I like because they're being introduced to a lot of aspects. Uh, instructions and various things that when I went through, when I pinned in 85, I didn't get that. We went through initiation. There you go. Now go to work. I was the only chief in my command at the time and I had no peers. I had no role models. I had no one to go to without going to the other side of the hangar and saying, Hey, will you help me out for a minute here? I'm, I'm, I need some guidance. And so I like the fact that it's a more inclusive and educational aspect of the process than at the time that I went through. So from that part of it, uh, I see a lot of positive uh, things coming out of it.
0: Okay. And what's been your involvement? Do they ask you to come give insights on how initiation was? Do they want you to talk about the Navy? What, what do you offer the new chief selects?
1: Well, a lot of it's guidance, uh, asking questions. Uh, they call us and talk to us and say, what do you think of this? Or what's your experience with that? So we have the direct interface with it. Uh, we're somewhat limited in things we can do right now under the distancing circumstances. Right. Um, participate in training. Actually, they, when they have training classes, some things are on teams for those that have government logins. They have some in-person training that is distanced, and reserve and retired chiefs are participating directly in that. And then I'll be involved in some uh, training exercises tomorrow, actually. Uh, the last day of the field exercise, to do teamwork building and communication. And so it gives us a chance to look at it from a point of view where we have the experience to say this is how you need to approach this rather than just making it up off the spur of the moment.
0: Okay. Let's get into writing a bit. So obviously now when you mentioned that at the beginning, I just remembered that article you had done before. So I love that you've been published a couple of times. So mm-hmm. what's your insight and advice to those who are considering writing or would need a little encouragement on writing, um, especially that young enlisted, naval professional?
1: I, I would strongly encourage it. And the reason is that writing helps a person learn how to speak and speak effectively because different parts of the brain are used in the oral communications versus verbal communications. And that's actually a mark in the eval, or it used to be when I got evals, uh, about communicates effectively both uh, oral and written. and writing for yourself even if you never publish it helps you learn to express yourself when you're addressing a group uh, you have to go in and see somebody let's say at a board you want to go in and feel confident write down what you want to talk about ahead of time and then read it out loud because you go oh that's rubbish and then you go fix it until you get it to the point where it is and additionally Sometimes you come up with an idea that you circulate it to other people and say, well, what do you think? And you get feedback. And I think in a lot of cases, people are more respected for that feedback or the option to have it when they've taken the time and the care to write it out and try to clean it up so that it's presentable. So I strongly encourage it.
0: Okay, awesome. And I hope you continue to write as well. So. Any last thoughts you'd like to offer? Any Oh, by the way, is in your article or anything? Any thoughts on uh,
1: anything we've discussed? We all have a good story, at least one from our time in. I would encourage people to write it down. And if they don't publish it, you know, in proceedings, or at least, you know, circulate it among peers and create a group that uh, supports each other in learning to communicate effectively and share their stories in the Navy. There's always somebody that would like to learn, even if it's just a family member who really wants to know what you did or do a written history from someone that you know, such as a father, a grandfather, grandmother, mother, who perhaps served in a, a previous generation and preserve that for your kids.
0: All right. I think that's a great way to end this episode. Again, my guest today has been retired Navy Senior Chief Robert Stewart. He's the author of Standing Ready Off Korea, which was published in the January edition of Proceedings Magazine. I pushed it out on my social media circles, and then also I linked it into my To The Deck Plates newsletter that I've started a couple months ago. So, hey Robert, congrats again on being published again, and thanks for taking time to offer us your insight and your experience, and good luck to you.
1: Well, thank you, and I appreciate the opportunity to do this.
0: All right, that wraps up the episode. Thanks for joining me. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the Proceedings Podcast, and leave us your thoughts and comments in the episode description. Until next time, remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.